This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 16th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The federal budgeting process is broken, not that it was great when it supposedly worked well. Megan McArdle, a columnist at Bloomberg, argues part of the problem is political polarization, but that doesn't account for all of it. We spoke this week. Here's how it's supposed to work. The president makes a suggestion to Congress. Congress ignores that suggestion, drafts a budget. They bounce it back and forth between the houses, and they send it back to the president. When was the last time something close to that happened? Uh, under George Bush. Um, so let's go back to how the how this process actually started, because that's that's a big part of the story. So uh, the way budgeting used to work um, back in the seventies, basically the budget process had broken down uh, over something called impoundment. President Nixon had just decided that Congress would appropriate money and he would just not spend it if he didn't like what they'd appropriated the money for. So Congress got very upset about this, as you can imagine. And so uh, they get together and in the mid-70s, they pass a big budget act, which totally changes the process um, in in a number of different ways. So uh, for one thing, it uh, creates the Congressional Budget Office, which for the first time is providing nonpartisan and basically professional rather than political assessments of what things cost. Because Congress had always felt that they were getting outmaneuvered by the president. So the president since the 20s has had professional economists on staff in the, in, in the budget office of the White House. And so, you know, had just more sort of capacity to draw up extremely detailed plans, make extremely detailed claims and so forth. Um, so they set up the Congressional Budget Office, which then funnily enough, proceeds, because it was the Democrats who did this, proceeds to torpedo things like Ted Kennedy's health care plan, which they, they said would cost three times what his office had estimated. <laughs> um, but they also, they, they change it so, you know, there, there's now a process where you are going to put out um, a budget resolution that's going to sort of tell each committee how much money they have to spend in the year. Um, and it's going to look a lot more like the executive process. There's a unified budget. Uh, it goes forth, you know, from fairly centralized process. It's basically a big up and down vote on one single budget bill. That process actually works pretty well until the 90s. So what happens in the 90s? Congress changes hands. So it turns out <laughs> that, that the people who drafted the, the, the Budget Act in the 70s had basically thought of Congress as being in kind of permanent democratic control because it had been forever. Um, and so... Uh, it's a process that's designed to work with that, where you've got a majority party and then you've got a minority party that basically does deals with the Democrats. They, you know, individual members or Republicans as a whole uh, will go over and if they can't get enough Democrats for some some program that they want to do, you know, you, you bring them in, you negotiate in exchange for your support some stuff that you want off of your list uh, and things go forward. Well, when Congress changes hands... Instead of people just thinking, oh, now the Republicans will control Congress, instead people think, well, next election I might get back in. So I better not let anyone do anything they want to do this time around because if I do, then you know, why would I trade something they want for something I want when I can just hopefully wait, win the next election, and then do whatever I want off my list and not have to deal with their list at all? So it's basically a symptom of rising partisanship. Um, but the thing is that control of Congress, uh, volatility is now at the highest levels it's been since the Civil War. And so no one ever has any incentive to deal 
And, you know, starting in the 90s, this process breaks down. And by the Bush administration, by the Obama administration, it's completely broken to the point where we're kind of not even really passing budgets anymore. We're passing these continuing resolutions, which just say um, just whatever we spent last year, <laughs> spend it again this year. Um, and that is a symptom of a, a process that just was not designed to work with the levels of partisanship and the levels of congressional volatility that we have. Um, and, you know, for a libertarian, you might say, well, that's great. Nothing's happening. I like that. But the fact is that, you know, when you have big government and you want smaller government, you actually need to affirmatively make it smaller, right? You don't want a continuing resolution that just says, you know, do whatever we did last year again. What you want is an actual process that is capable of building coalitions, making some compromises. Uh, sadly, this is always necessary in a uh, vast and pluralistic democracy such as ours. And then actually doing things, making changes to programs, making changes to what we spend. We're kind of not um, in a position to do that. So my criticism might be that the process that we had up until the mid-70s wasn't so hot necessarily no, that's right. because it was largely parties agreeing on larger government. Well, I mean, it, yes and no. You should remember that given how firm democratic control of the House of Representatives was, uh, it was one party agreeing and the other party kind of compromising because they didn't have a choice. If you're never going to get into government, you kind of do what you can within those constraints. So it was the president occasionally acceding yes, to the democratic yes, wishes. Exactly. There was more compromise, but there was more compromise in, in part because the, the party control. And, you know, it looks like in the House we may have I – and mean, we'll see in 2018 because, um, you know, Trump is, is unfavorables are high. But in general, the um, – Republicans are getting the kind of structural advantage in the House that Democrats had in, in you know, the post-war era. And so we may, I guess, eventually end up back in something that looks more like that. Um, you know, the, and I don't think anyone's saying that we should go back to the old system. <laughs> we definitely should not just go back to the old system, but we do need a budget system that enables us to do actual legislating rather than having these huge votes on up or down bills, which have a bunch of problems. So one of the problems is that it makes these fights over kind of abstract ideological issues. So how much money should we spend on welfare? Not should we fund this particular welfare program, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, even as a libertarian, you may think we shouldn't spend very much money on, on welfare. But even within that context, you think, well, I also care about the particular programs, but there are some programs that are worse than others, and I would like to actually have that fight. And those fights get harder to have. Does part of the process um – the fact that these fights are so bitter and the stakes are so large, that it is part of the problem with that, the fact that these things are combined into these yes, giant I I, pieces of legislation? I think having giant pieces of legislation certainly hurts on that front, is that it makes the battles extremely stark. Um, there are other reasons the battles have gotten so stark. One is that partisanship is increasing. You know, everyone complains about gridlock in Washington or they, they complain about various things about Washington. And the fact is that most of what they complain about is the voters. You know, politicians are not just evil people who like to go around being mean to the people on the other side of the aisle because they're bad. They're responding to the fact that their base really, 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 really doesn't want them to compromise with the other side. To what extent are Congress people truly compelled to vote on much of the spending that the federal government does? They are, but it's, it, you know, the, the basic problem, the bigger the bill, right, the less anyone is accountable for any particular provision, right? If you're having an up or down vote on a budget, 
it's hard to, for someone to come along and say, um, well, but you voted for this thing that's terrible. And they can say, well, yeah, I did, but I, you know, it was either vote yes or no. It's essentially a veto instead of it's more like an executive power than it is like a legislative power. Um, so, you know, ideally for better policymaking, we should be looking at smaller bills, set broad kind of overall priorities on maybe a longer time frame, uh, like two years. Uh, and then within that, do more small scale legislating about and have fights over actual programs, which they actually look like, um, you know, how much should be spent on this thing and how should it be structured? I don't know what the rules are for the feds, but I know in many states, the state constitutions specifically prohibit legislation that deals with more than one subject. <laughs> and, but in, and many of these states do not feel constrained by right. that requirement and they're more than happy to combine and create omnibus legislation that combines a matter related to spending might be the subject of the bill. Look, there are arguments for large-scale budgeting and I think you do need some sort of overall uh, framework because and you and I know this. I've written this. Uh, we're both sort of fans of the personal finance guru, Dave Ramsey. And uh, I've written about the effect of household budgeting, which is that over and over when I when I write about consumer finance and I talk to people who are in trouble, one thing that you see people have done is that it's not like they just did something that was so obviously crazy and unaffordable in their income. It's they made a series of choices of, can I afford this? And the answer was, yes, you can afford this. They just couldn't afford all of it, right? right. Each, each decision <laughs> seemed divorced from each other decision, right? A person who makes $100,000 a year can afford to buy Jimmy Choo pumps. They can afford to go on a nice vacation. They, can, right? they can't afford to do maybe all of those things, but because they only looked at each individual purchase, there are they, they get themselves into huge financial holes. Um, so there are reasons to have at least a framework that says, you know, these are our broad priorities. At the same time, what you don't want is a situation where, like, imagine if in your household all purchases got voted on an omnibus budget year, budget bill once a year. And you never actually thought about, like, which Jimmy Choo pumps do we want? What, <laughs> what should it look like? It's a little bit like that is, is you know, there, there's some sort of happy medium that we have lost. So you're suggesting that Congress needs to go on the envelope plan. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but what what you're really talking about is 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 essentially a global a global document that stresses priorities yes. and some sort of cap, and then let's we'll worry about the details in step two. Right. Well, and you know the other problem, the other major problem that we have with the current budget process is the way it's set up. It, it's quite short term focused, and so if you look at what the, what is the biggest fiscal problem the United States has right now, right? It's quite clear that the biz, biggest fiscal pr problem we have is entitlements. But the big problems with entitlements kind of fall outside of the budget window. And so there's no incentive for Congress to work on them. There's no – they're not forced to work on, on these things. They work on these very short-term priorities. And so what we end up trying to do is fix this looming entitlement uh, problem basically by trimming the actually now quite small – section of the budget that is domestic discretionary spending. And, you know, this process can't go on. It's sort of like trying to, if you have an, an, a huge and underwater mortgage, trying to fix that problem by cutting your food budget. I mean, you can do that for a while, but at some point, you know, you're living on ramen and cheese doodles. You just don't have any more room. But if you don't, if your budget kind of just takes that mortgage as a given every year, then you are going to get yourself into some pretty serious problems. And I think that is where we are headed. So uh, fixing that, I mean, symptoms of it being fixed would be people willing to deal. Yeah. And so how do we get to a what, – what process would make 
you know, the bulk of the middle of Congress say, all right, let's deal? So there are two theories of how to do reform, as outlined to me by Yuval Levin, a former uh, budget staffer and also uh, someone who's been on the staff of the White House. Um, He basically said, look, there's two ways you can kind of go. One is that you could make it really a joint process with the executive where like Congress and the president has to settle, have to settle down and agree on a joint budget together. Right. And that's, as he said, it's, it's sort of basically saying, okay, this process is broken. Let's make it work. The other approach, uh, which I think you've all favors is saying this process is broken and it's just not suitable for today's political environment. So let's scrap it and get a new process. And that's where you get the idea of a two-year budget window, smaller budgeting bills that are in more discrete policy areas where you're looking at programs rather than like general categories. Um, and what that says is like get Congress back to legislating. Stop making most of these votes basically a veto and instead make them um, votes about this program, how much do we want to spend this year. And I, I think I, I tend to favor Yuval's approach. Um, the problem is, as as he said, that you know to do that would require a major reform. We have had budget reforms in the past. We've been in the '40s. We've been in the '70s. So it's not that we can't reform the process, but people in Congress have to admit that they have a problem, and then they have to start thinking about solutions. And that really does not seem like that's on the table right now. Megan McArdle is a columnist at Bloomberg. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.